Please pray with me. Gracious God, we pray that your Holy Spirit may be present with us in this time, so that as we hear these words, we might hear a bit of your word. Amen. So Moses, Moses really had it made. He had the life that, that he really needed, the life that he wanted, the comfortable life. You remember the story of Moses? He had to flee from Egypt uh, after he killed an Egyptian who was attacking an Israelite. And he fled to Midian, and there uh, he had the good fortune of meeting Jethro and also Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, who he married. And so here he is in a comfortable place, good community, a wife, an inheritance that waited for him. He was going out one day with his flock, uh, going a little bit farther than normal because they needed to find the good grass. And the flock, the flock led up to this mountain, and Moses follows them up this mountain and then sees a remarkable sight. An angel, um, an angel calling to him from the midst of a bush that was burning but not being consumed. I give you exhibit A. The burning bush. Now, for a long time, I've been confused about what this burning bush was all about. I mean, I've seen a lot of fires in New England. In the cold winters, we'd, we'd make fires pretty often. And you know, every single time we made a fire, the logs, the, the logs, they would burn. They would be consumed. And then I came to Houston. And when I'm in my living room in Houston, and I light my fireplace... It turns out there's fire, but the logs aren't consumed. It's a miracle. Something tells me that's not quite what Moses was talking or what happened to Moses in this passage. And so Moses is fascinated by this, as I would be too, and he goes a little bit closer and he keeps looking at it, and then he hears the voice of God. Moses, Moses. Moses responds, here I am. And then God says, come no closer. Remove your sandals. Because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, the summer after my first year in divinity school, I was an intern at a church in Wolfboro, New Hampshire, on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee this beautiful community that in the summertime swells uh, many-fold with all the people who come up there to find recreation and relaxation uh, in that beautiful spot. And I remember at one point, my uh, mentor and, and, and boss, Jim Christensen, said, hey, we're going down to the new Roman Catholic Church, St. Catherine Drexel. Uh, we're going down because this is the dedication of this new church. And they'd invited all the local religious leaders. So uh, Jim and I went down in his car, and we drove down the few miles to Alton Bay and pulled up into this Roman Catholic church. And we get there, and we walk in, and we were told that this was the first mass that was celebrated on this consecrated altar. I remember scratching my head. You know, again, I was raised a congregationalist. I'm scratching my head, being like, what do, you, what do they mean, consecrated altar? It turns out, I found out, that in a Roman Catholic church, in order to celebrate a proper mass, you have to have the altar be consecrated first. And so the altars actually have placed somewhere in them, I always wonder where, ever since then I've looked around, uh, placed somewhere in them a relic. That there's actually a relic of a saint that's somewhere in the altar, and then it's consecrated by a bishop, uh, to make it a properly uh, holy place 
in order to celebrate the Mass. Now, being a good Protestant and a good Congregationalist, as soon as this was explained to me, I immediately, like, ugh, like all the sort of hairs stood on the back of my neck. Because, again, uh, the early Congregationalists detested this notion that you could have uh, holy ground that is consecrated by a bishop. That somehow someone comes in, says some words, and all of a sudden something is holy ground. They, they, they detested this so much, and that's the reason why the space that we are in right now is called a meeting house and not a sanctuary. Because the Congregationalists were determined to say that there's nothing necessarily holy about this space. It's the people gathered. It's the congregation that makes it holy. And again, early congregational meeting houses, they would be used not just for worship purposes, but also for civic purposes. Uh, The town meetings and other things happened in the meeting house because it was the largest building in town. It was a meeting house. And indeed, I remember when I was in high school and in my senior English class, uh, we uh, were studying the book of Job and we opened our Bibles to study the book of Job. And the first thing our instructor told us was, you know, it's all right to write in your Bibles. Now, again, being raised a congregationalist, I'm like, well, of course it is. It's just a Bible, just a book. You know, I can write and make notes, but you could see, especially the Roman Catholic students there going, am I allowed to write in this book? It's like, yes, it's okay, again. Uh, in the 16th century, in the Protestant Reformation, there were, uh, there were actually riots, these, uh, these riots that, were, that, that preachers got people fired up to, to go into churches and tear down images, uh, to, to break stone, uh, stained glass windows, uh, because they wanted, to, they wanted to rip out any notion, that, uh, any notion of what they, what they would see as idolatry of a space. And so when we think about the concept of holy ground as Protestants, as good congregationalists, at least within me, I have this deep unease. What do I do with this concept? I've drunk the spiritual Kool-Aid since I was a little kid that there's no such thing as a consecrated space. So what do we do with it? My... Junior summer in college, I was an intern at a strategy consulting firm in Boston called the Parthenon Group. Now, Parthenon had their offices then right on State Street in Boston. Now, I was not a very good consultant, uh, I have to confess, uh, mostly because I really had no interest in the work whatsoever. But, <laughs> but I stuck it out for that summer, and every lunchtime, I would go down, and I, there was a place nearby that sold this like New York-style pizza, and I would get these huge, greasy two slices of New York-style pizza, which were dirt cheap, and I would take them down past the Boston Harbor Hotel to a bench where I sat and looked out on Boston Harbor. Every day, I went down and enjoyed my time alone looking at Boston Harbor. And amidst all, of that, amidst all the craziness of that summer and me not really liking the job very much, the one thing I looked forward to every single day was my chance to have the launch, to see the beautiful boats, to see the waves and the wind lapping over the water, to see the planes taking off from Logan Airport in the distance. And then a couple years later, I was working at a boutique investment bank, and whenever I had lunch, I would take my lunch, this time a little bit healthier version, usually a salad or a sandwich, and I would go back to that exact same spot. And amidst our 100-hour work weeks at that investment bank, I would carve out time so that I could find some sense of peace and centering right there. Now, I wouldn't have said it at the time, but looking back on it, that was a place where I found communion with God. 
on a daily basis, just me in the ocean. And it moved me so much. I remember saying at the time, uh, before I die, I'd like to spend some time living on the ocean just because of that experience. And indeed, when we went, my friends and I went out to Provincetown, Mass. a few weeks ago, uh, there are two ferries that go to Provincetown. And uh, without really telling them why, I sort of reserved a spot on the ferry that leaves from Long Wharf. Um, And the reason was because it's right near that spot. And I had so many positive memories of standing there and, again, finding a sense of peace, quiet, and a sense of God. For me, that communion of God made that spot holy. In the mid-90s, my family was up in New Hampshire, extended family, and we were renting a house up there. And I remember one day my aunt and uncle came in. They'd been looking for a house on Winnipesaukee, and they came in, uh, and they said they'd found the right place. And it was a little outside their price range, but after they left it, my aunt said she turned to my uncle and said, time to call the bank. And I remember just how joyful they were because they knew that that was a place where they were going to raise their children. And they knew all the memories they were going to have in that house. And indeed, their home uh, down in Massachusetts, they switched homes a number of times, but the one place that was the consistent in their family was that home up in Winnipesaukee. And again, my cousins, if you think of their happiest memories growing up, I guarantee it's from spending summers at that place. Where my aunt and uncle didn't have to work, they could spend time with their family uh, and have all those wonderful memories. Whenever they go back to that place, there's a sense, uh, there's a spiritual dimension to the place for them and for their family. And I thought of this this past week as I saw people deeply moved by the loss of their homes. Part of the loss, of course, is the material loss. You know, you lose, you lose something that you care about, you have to replace it, That's, that, that takes effort. There's, there's a sense of that loss there. But as I saw some of the faces of people who had lost things, I couldn't help but think of that same, that same concept, that, that they lost a sense of a space that was holy. That that home here in Houston is a home where they might have raised children, where they might have had so many wonderful memories. Maybe there were objects in the home that were destroyed that can't be replaced. Objects that to them are priceless because of the memories that were there, because of the holiness of those objects, because indeed God was present in that place. God then said to Moses out of the bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of, I- the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God of your father. When I was up in New Hampshire a few weeks ago, at one point during the week, we all went out uh, in my uncle's boat on Lake Winnipesaukee. And my aunt had packed a nice little picnic, and uh, included in the picnic, of course, were a series of drinks, including their signature rum cocktail, which was very tasty but very lethal. <laughs> and so we were riding along on, on Winnipesaukee, and at, at, there was one point in the, in the boat trip where you know, some people were up in the front of the boat talking, and then some people were in the back of the boat talking, and it was just me and my uncle right there. And I looked over at my uncle, and I said, you know what this reminds me of? Uh, this reminds me of grandpa, my grandfather, my uncle's father. Because they had had a house on the lake, 
And my grandfather had loved going out in his boat. And my grandfather died when I was six. But one of the few memories I had of him that's very dear memory to me is actually being out on his boat in Winnipesaukee because it made him so happy. And I brought this up to my uncle, and my uncle smiled, and he said, yes, he said, every time I'm on the lake, I think of him too. There's that sense that that lake not only was a place uh, where my uncle could raise his family, but also you could really hear the voices of the dead, hear the voices of my grandfather as we rode along in that boat. I think of uh, the South Central Conference annual meeting this year was up at Cathedral of Hope in Dallas. And I'd never been up to Cathedral Hope in Dallas. Again, this is an MCC church, was an MCC church, now UCC. So the MCC, the Metropolitan Community Church, is an uh, LGBT denomination uh, in this country and, and in, uh, internationally. And that particular congregation, Cathedral Hope Dallas, has they have a plaque where they lost some 1,500 members of their church to the HIV-AIDS uh, epidemic. 1,500 members they lost. And in one of the breaks, I wandered around, and they have this beautiful columbarium. And as I walked through the columbarium, again, these little places where they kept people's ashes, um, I read one name after another. And as I read those names, I kept thinking of what their lives were like. I mean, it's all these, you know, people are dying in the 80s and early 90s, into the mid-90s. Um, nearly every one of the people buried there uh, has that end date. And you, you, you sort of know how they died and what that was like. And I just, I just kept thinking about what their lives were. And again, one of those places where I could hear, I could hear the voices of the dead. It, it made that place sacred. Much like our memorial garden here, right? There's something about the memorial garden, I'm sure, that if people who aren't even members here at FCC were to come and wander through the garden, they would sense that there was something about that place. And for, the, for many of you here, that place has sacred significance. Because there you can sit... You can feel the grass. You can remember people whose ashes are interred there. And you can hear the voices of those now dead. And that makes it holy. Some cities have that too. I remember walking through the streets of Rome. And you just have this incredible sense of the past. This incredible power of people who used to be there. And there's something deeply sacred about that.
that incident in the Ludlow Massacre, there we go, voice of God is back, um, that incident in the Ludlow Massacre helped lead to the eight-hour workday and new child labor laws. As horrible as that incident was, as much suffering as happened in that place in Ludlow, it also became a place of deliverance, and I would never have known about it and never have walked there were there not a monument to have reminded us of that. So as we put things back together here in Houston, how can we remember the stories that this is holy? You read some of the news accounts from other parts of the country, and they bash Houston for, for its ex- excessive growth. They bash Houston for being a center of the oil industry and therefore of climate change, and hey, this is what you deserve. They show, they, they show pictures of suffering all across the city, and that's what, that's what some people see. But when I look around the city, I do see this as a place of holy ground, and I hope you do too. And in the months and years ahead, I hope you can remind people of that story. That you can tell people as you pass by Buffalo Bayou, this bayou looks very pretty now. It can also be a sense of great destruction. But also, let me tell you about what happened during that week in Harvey. I wish they actually had a plaque that they would put on the George O'Brien Convention Center so that as different conventions came there and different businesses came through there, there was still some sort of plaque that said, in a time of great crisis... When 10,000 people were without a home and in need, having no food, no clothing, and no place to go, this place was a sense of shelter for those people. This place had lines around the block for volunteers who wanted to show up and help. This place became a place of deliverance and indeed a place of holiness. As Protestants, we might have some deep unease with a sense of holy ground, but I hope this week you've, you've experienced that on some level. As we go forward, let us remember to take off our sandals so that we can mark that and never forget it.